0: Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fall on us so that um, we could be attentive to your voice, so that our hearts could be um, moved, so that we would respond to your leading in obedience and with joy. Um, Would you fall on us so that increasingly we look like Jesus, so that the world would see him and would hear him and would experience him wherever we go? We offer ourselves to you, Holy Spirit, and ask, Um, do your work among us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I hate waiting. I'm like one of the most impatient people I know. Um, The idea of being trapped in a doctor's office or at a government office without my smartphone, right, just, my hands are getting sweaty just thinking about it, right? If you're like me, it's that New Yorker fear, right, of like being on the subway platform. And if you live like I do on one of those lines without a timer, just wondering, when's the train going to come? right? Like, you're standing there waiting, especially during rush hour, and you're thinking it can't be much longer, and everybody's like, okay, how long is it going to take? And... Because if we look more often, it will come, right? And so you start getting bored, you start like watching the rats, um, you, at least in my stop. Um, you listen for the telltale clink as the brake uh, things begin to release on their ho- in the hopes that it's going to come, right? And you're like, oh, oh, clink, clink, clink. It's going to come, it's going to come. I'm feeling the breeze, right? But you know, and then it comes from the other side. And you think, oh, right? Or if you're not a New Yorker who takes the subway and you drive and you're trapped behind that one car, right? That one car that feels the need to drive just a few miles below the speed limit because they love Jesus and obey the law, You know, the speed limit that our mayor just reduced, a few miles per hour, so it's going, right? Oh, I hate that. Or if you're like, I have two small children, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, and like every morning when we're trying to get ready to go to school, I find myself saying things like, get out of my way because I have to get their breakfast, and I have to get them fed, and I have to get them dressed, and I have to get their teeth brushed, and I have to get the backpacks. And I know that we're running out of time, and if there's even, like, a small delay because the socks aren't the color they want, Lord, help us all. We've now down to that, you know, two-minute window that we have to get to school on time is now eaten up, and the train has to come because the worst experience of all, right, for a New Yorker is you walk down the stairs into the subway. And as you get down to the platform, the doors begin to close. You just go, no, I hate waiting because my children aren't type A enough in the morning at 7 a.m. So you may be wondering, um, why is he preaching on patience? I figure if I can't be a master at teaching you how to be patient, at least I could be a fellow journeyer with you on the goal of looking at it. We're in the middle of a series here on the Holy Spirit and life in the Spirit, and we've um, been going on trying to explore who is the Holy Spirit, right? And riches help us think about the Holy Spirit is God himself answering his promise that he would be with us, not just with us in kind of some ethereal sense out there or with us at a temple over there, but actually the story of Scripture is God's presence coming closer and closer until he dwells within us. He's the shy member of the Trinity who continually points us toward Jesus, and he's like a wind where we don't know where he's going, but we do know if we would open ourselves up and be free to catch the wind, as Red was suggesting with his windmill vision, that we would be propelled into Christlikeness and look more and more like him and do the things that he's called us to do. If we knew the Holy Spirit, we would trust that he's speaking to us, guiding us and leading us. We aren't alone. and If we give ourselves to what the Holy Spirit is saying and what He's doing, He'd slowly begin to manifest His fruit in us, right? We would naturally begin to bear the kind of um, character traits and behaviors and dispositions that would result in joy and love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. In fact, we would begin to look like Jesus. Because the fruit of the Spirit describes Jesus' character. And if you look at Jesus throughout the Gospels, you'll realize the man had an agenda. He was headed places. He had goals that he wanted to make. He knew he needed to go to Jerusalem. He knew he'd be crucified. And even though he was determined to get there, he was patient enough to stop. When a woman touches his robe and needs healing, even though he's off to heal a 12-year-old girl who's sick and dying, he pauses and talks to her. He's interrupted by blind people and beggars constantly, and he never seems rushed, even though he has a purpose. If we want to pursue the fruits of the Spirit, it's not just because it's some abstract thing the Spirit does. It's because as we give ourselves to growing in the fruits of the Spirit, we're going to look more like Jesus. And that's what we need, and that's what the world needs. So... um, We're on uh, a second week, looking at the fruits of the Spirit, and I chose patience, as I said, because um, I'm terrible at being patient, and I figured um, the best way to work on something is to be forced to preach on it so that I am forced to live with it, at least with some integrity during the week. So I'm going to invite us to look at a passage of Scripture that talks about patience, um, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. And you'll notice um, in this passage, James invites us to patience in three ways, Uh, patience in the midst of uh, Injustice, patience with the community of Christ, and then patience in the process of suffering and discipleship. So look at, listen to the passage with me in James 5, uh, beginning in verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord is coming near. James is getting us to pay attention to what does it look like to be patient in injustice, have patience with other Christians, um, and patient through suffering. So let's look again at these first few verses in James uh, 7 through 8. James says, look, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Now, the context for asking the early Christians that he's writing to to be patient is these were largely poor Christians— who were being abused by richer people around them. Because that's what's actually happening in James 5, 1 through 6. Uh, James is very clear. You're doing terrible things because, you know, rich people at the time had so much power and so much privilege that they could manipulate the court systems in such a way that poor people had no chance. They knew that the courts were not a safe place for them. They did not have any assurance that they would get justice. Rich people at the time had so much wealth that really, from the moment they were born, they walked into a privileged world where every advantage was given to them. Education was offered to them, sufficient nutrition was offered to them, every opportunity was offered to them, and because they were rich, people around them supported them and helped them advance. And if you were poor, that just wasn't the case. If you were rich, you'd be able to unfairly take people's wages, unfairly take people's lives, livelihoods, possessions, and there would be almost no repercussions because they could cry out against you and very little would change. I wonder if we hear any complaints like that now. So why would James call these people to patience? Wouldn't it make more sense for James, writing from Scripture, to go, you should be outraged, complain against that, right? The Lord is the Lord of justice. He cares about the cries of the poor. Don't put up with it. Why doesn't he do that? Or if Karl Marx is right, and religion's just the opiate of the masses, then why doesn't he say, look, I know it's pretty hard, but one day you'll go to heaven. That'll all be better. So it may take 30, 40, 60, 70 years. Suck up and deal, it'll be better later. For an eternity, it shouldn't matter. Just fatalistically accept what life gives you and soldier on. But James doesn't do that. He calls them to be patient. Now I want to be clear, it's patient, not to be patient with injustice, but to be patient until the Lord returns. Don't put up with injustice, but wait patiently because the judge is coming, he says. Because the Lord is coming with the same inevitability as the seasons change. Just as a farmer can count on the fact that there's going to be an autumn rain that allows the seed to germinate and a spring rain that allows... The um, fruit to finally come to ripeness. So, in the same way that that happens every year, with inevitably the Lord is coming back. And if the Lord is coming back, and the farm, and you can trust Him in the same way that the farmer trusts the rain to come. Because you see, I think if you're patient in the face of injustice, there's a distinctively Christian way to engage injustice. If the Lord is coming then he is coming for those who are oppressed because the judge is coming. If you believe the Lord is coming, that he will come back to bring righteousness. He will come back to judge the living and the dead. He will right the wrongs that we experience now. Those who are bowed down will be raised up. Those who are wealthy and powerful now will be humbled. Those who weep now will have every tear wiped away from their eye in both Isaiah and Revelation, the Bible's Right, Those who hunger will one day be filled. Those who thirst will have water. God will right every wrong, and we believe that the overall course and arc of history bends toward justice because God is a God of justice, and when the just God returns, he will bring justice on the earth. Freedom will come, because he is coming. And if you know the judge is coming, then you engage in injustice with a deep well of trust. And I think when you look at successful movements against injustice, ones that look distinctively Christian, they wed these two things together. Um, In South Africa, during the great protest uh, against the apartheid regime, one of the um, great opponents of of apartheid was the South African Council of Churches. And in 1988, the headquarters of the South African Council of Churches um, blew up. A massive bomb had been planted there, largely to blunt this organization that was one of the strongest opponents of apartheid. Bishop Desmond Tutu, who many of you will have heard of, and the staff of the Council of Churches arrived at the scene of the destruction, and they had to decide what to do. And in their belief and in their conviction, they began to sing and dance at the street as an act of defiance that they would not be beaten down. And they sang a particular song called Freedom is Coming, and this is how it goes, Freedom, oh, freedom, freedom 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 is coming oh yes i know and they began to sing that kind of proclaiming in that place we believe this is not the last word we believe this is not how history will run we believe that god's truth will prevail but you see The verse doesn't end there, but the song continues critically, I think. It's not just that freedom is coming, but Jesus, oh Jesus... Jesus, Jesus is coming, oh yes, I know. And you sing that song and you begin to sing that both verses time and time again and it became a song that they would sing at political marches. It was banned for a time because the government knew when the people believed freedom would come because Jesus would come, their commitment and ability to engage in justice wasn't fueled just by being passionate or smart or angry. It was fueled by a clear sense that the king himself was coming to restore his kingdom. And that means for us, if Jesus is coming, we don't have to be smarter than everybody else in the room. We don't have to be angrier than the other activists. We don't have to be convinced that our system can be overturned. What we can be convinced about is that Jesus is coming. This is his country, his world, and he will restore it. If Jesus is coming, then justice is coming for the oppressed because Jesus is just. If Jesus is coming, then redemption and salvation are also coming because he comes not merely as judge, but he comes as savior. And I think the distinctively Christian thing about that is that, just, that salvation is coming not just for those of us who are oppressed, not just for those of us who feel beaten down, but salvation and redemption are being offered, at least until he arrives, to those who are doing the oppressing. The unique thing about the Christian engagement in injustice is that we don't hate the people we are trying to change. We don't despise the oppressor. Instead, we intercede for them. We engage with them and plead with them to change as ambassadors of one who come with a message of reconciliation. Repent so that you can be aligned with what God is doing. And part of the reason we engage patiently with those who oppress is because in fact, the Lord has been patient with us. Why does the Lord tarry? Why does he wait and not come now and make everything better? Well, 2 Peter 3, 9 suggests the answer. I suspect many of you know it. If you grew up in Sunday school like I did, right? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to what? Perish. But for everyone to come to repentance, right? The Lord is patient and waiting to give everyone the maximum chance to respond to his good news. In the same way, as we engage in justice, believing that the Redeemer is coming we express hope not only for our own redemption and our own salvation, but we begin to extend it and pray for the redemption of those doing the oppressing because God desires that none perish. It makes me think of a prayer prayed by Gregory Vlastos, which goes like this, "'O God, who has given us the grace to be instruments of love in its work of healing and judgment, who has commissioned us to proclaim forgiveness and condemnation, deliverance to the captive and captivity to the proud. Give us the patience of those who understand and the impatience of those who love, that the might of thy gentleness may work through us and the mercy of thy wrath may speak through us. We're patient in the face of injustice because we believe that the just king is coming and the saving ruler is coming. Having said that, let me make a quick note. I want to speak a word to those of you who may be in a physically or sexually abusive relationship right now. I want to suggest that being patient in the face of injustice does not mean that you accept the ongoing abuse in the hopes of redemption of the abuser or yet one more after one more tearful apology. Patience means never giving up hope in their repentance and change, but it doesn't require you to continue to accept it. Let me urge you get help. And if you need to, get out. Trust in the Lord, but don't put yourself in danger. That's not what patience means. And I'm saying that because I've talked to too many people who have survived abusive situations who were told by um, well-meaning, but I think ill-informed Christians, be patient and just pray for redemption. And I don't think that's what God is asking you to do. What he is asking us to do, I want to suggest that if the Lord is coming, that we engage Injustice, particularly reflecting the fruits of the Spirit. We're going to do it with love, we're going to do it with joy, with peace, with patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We may protest, we may march, we may change what we buy and where we buy it from, we may write legislators and the media, we may resist, but we're going to do so in a way that demonstrates that the Spirit is at work within us. We're going to do it in such a way that we can proclaim with integrity in both word and deed. Injustice is intolerable and completely objectionable. But I'm not going to become an objectionable person while I act against it. I'm going to look like Jesus. I'm going to reflect his values and his character, so I will love. I will have peace as I engage in justice. I'm going to demonstrate joy in the face of adversity. I'm going to demonstrate self-control when it would be easy to do damage. I'm going to do all these things because I want the oppressor to encounter Jesus. And if they encounter Jesus, then they have the possibility of being transformed, and we have a system that can be transformed. Because if you look more like Jesus, it won't mean just that you're nicer, kinder, and gentler you may turn into the person who overturns the tables at the temple. You may denounce the powers and systems and structures and principalities um, when you speak, but you're going to constantly offer the hope of redemption. That's why I think James talks about harvest. We're going to do what we need to do. We're going to sow the seed. We're going to act as we're called to act. But in the end, God brings the rain God brings the growth, and God brings the harvest, and until he does, and he will, we're gonna wait patiently. We're also not just gonna be patient in the face of injustice, but um, patient in community. James goes on to say in verse nine, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Because that same judge that you think is gonna get the oppressor, is at your doorstep. And he could be talking to you next, right? Don't grumble against one another. Now, let's be honest. It's sometimes hard to love other church people, isn't it? I mean, not for you, but for other people. It's awfully difficult. Sometimes if you're ever on social media and you follow the comments to Christians who um, tweet or blog or Facebook, particularly on anything that's even remotely interesting like politics or race relations or economics it's a cesspool once christians get involved christians don't bring any light or any kindness or joy into the conversation they're just as angry just as frustrating just as trollish as everybody else seems to be and even outside of social media i mean i mean you're all delightful but there are groups of christians right who you just think i just see them and something in me dies right Um, They claim to be followers of Christ, but they're just cranky all the time. That really critical person who just never has a word of blessing but seems to be a burden, right? That Christian who just, you watch them and you think, my, oh, my, if I needed an example of who not to be, the Lord has provided you in my life, right? I mean, they're just out there. And not only that, but, you know, Christians get a little snarky and a little hurtful sometimes. Church people can be hard to love, and so James says, look, be patient and therefore don't grumble against one another because Jesus is standing there with you too. I work with University Christian Fellowship, a mission on college and university campuses, and I remember talking to a student named Deborah um, Deborah had been um, trying to get involved with fellowship, and I had been discipling her, but, like, every week she came with complaints. They're not welcoming enough. Like, I show up and nobody will talk to me. Why do you guys pray like that? Like, what is that accomplishing? Why don't you talk about this? Like, just, like, every week there was another complaint about what we weren't doing, how we weren't loving enough, how we didn't pray right. Like, it just went on and on and on. I know none of you would be like that. <laughs> so, you know, multiple weeks later, listening to Deborah talk like this, I And yet another meeting where she was doing it, I kept saying, you know, Deborah, you could be the difference in the situation. Maybe God brought you to demonstrate to people what it would like to be welcoming, right? Maybe you're here to actually pray the prayers that the group needs to pray. Deborah, have you thought about offering to help lead this Bible study that you're so unhappy with and maybe be a welcomer at the door of our large group? Because you could set the tone, and every time she's like, no, no, it's not gonna happen. Nobody will change. It's just too hard, blah, you know. And so it went on and on, and finally, because I'd been discipling her for a while, I finally said, look, Deborah, I think you have a choice here. Either you could be Christ's gift to the group and helping change us, or you could continue to be Satan. What do you want to do? And she gave me that look, because I guess professional Christians aren't supposed to call people Satan. Who knew? But I said, look, Deborah, we've been meeting for weeks now, the only thing you seem to do is accuse this fellowship of failing you. And as I look at Scripture, the role of the Satan is to be the accuser of the brethren, right? They bring words of condemnation and no words of redemption. They heap on guilt without offering help. So you get a choice right now. Are you going to be the way God helps change this or are you just going to play the role of Satan? What do you want to do? And to her credit, she chose not to be Satan anymore. <laughs> How can we avoid being Satan with one another, is really the question. Let me suggest that Paying attention to the Holy Spirit might give us a way out if you happen to be prone to that direction. As you engage with that hard-to-love person in the fellowship of Christ, whether it's a family member or a church member or a small group leader, I wonder if we actually believed if the Holy Spirit was like a wind that it might increase our patience because um, we don't really know where the Holy Spirit is at work in that person's life, do we? That... The Holy Spirit might be doing something in their life and either we could help block it and stymie it or we could blow it and encourage it and bring it to fruition. If we believe the Holy Spirit is the one who speaks, then we can be patient because we know the Holy Spirit is already talking to that person, like the Holy Spirit is talking to every person who is a follower of Jesus. And we can count on the fact that the Holy Spirit is already pointing out the issues that that person needs to work with, and we can either distract them from that, or we can encourage and help it, not necessarily by reinforcing it. I think the Holy Spirit is telling you you're a jerk. I hope you're paying attention, right? But instead, by creating the kind of environment where we don't grumble against them, but we pray for them, right? Where we don't condemn them, but we encourage them. Where we choose to be a blessing in their life in the hopes that as we do so, they're paying more and more attention to what the Holy Spirit may be doing around them. James invites us, be patient in the midst of facing injustice. Be patient with the community of Christ. And then he says, look, you also got to be patient As you suffer in your path of discipleship, look at the last section of this passage. He says in verse 10, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James says, look... um, The prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, right, those who were following Jesus carefully, were very patient in the suffering they always suffered. And you could, if you spent any time in the Old Testament prophets, and we have as a church, right, you know how hard some of their lives were. There's Hosea who was commanded to marry somebody who was unfaithful to him. There's Jeremiah who was repeatedly pursued, jailed, um, and killed. There's Isaiah, I mean, and Ezekiel. I mean, all of them had really hard lives as they were pursuing Jesus as they were following God's call on them. And what James seems to say is, look, if if you'll just be faithful and patient in this, as hard as it can be, as long as the road may seem, as difficult as it is, I promise, like Job, there will be glory at the end. You will hear God. You will be transformed by Him. You will be blessed by His presence. It's actually, I think, what James was saying earlier In James 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If we endure, if we persevere, if we're patient, even though it's hard to follow Jesus, James says, you will be mature and complete in Christ you really will lack in nothing. So how do you do this? I want to suggest that sometimes perseverance means you're hanging on, right, desperately in the hardest situations, and yet, because of trust and patience, you endure, and you have the opportunity and the ability to fly. In part, what you do, I think, is you begin to pray with the Holy Spirit because Paul tells us in Romans 8 that when the world. All of creation looks at what could be and where it is right now and how God is beginning to press everything toward glory. Creation itself groans, longing like um, a woman in childbirth for this great thing to be birthed. And he says, look, the same thing is happening with you as a church, right? All of us know the hard difficulty of labor in being birthed into this new life that Jesus desires and so that we groan together. You're never alone. And then Paul goes on, in Romans 8, they and then the Holy Spirit groans within us too so that we join with the whole of creation, the whole body of Christ and the Holy Spirit himself as we just cry, Lord, would you complete what you began in me? But the great thing is we do not do that alone. Optimally, there's not a person in this sanctuary to whom you couldn't turn and say, I am so struggling to be faithful right now. And what they would, I pray to God's head, to you, is, amen, me too. Let's pray together and for one another. Because there's no struggle that you have that's so foreign to me that I couldn't say I struggle with that too and desire to walk alongside you. It's one of the reasons that um, some of my heroes in the faith are those folk who are same-sex attracted but are pursuing celibacy because they know scripture calls them to it. And yet are in a culture which really tells them unless you're sexually satisfied, you're nothing. And find, they find no place out in the rest of the world to be at home because they're choosing this and they often find little place within the church for welcome or safety. I think of a letter written by this man named Alex Davidson who was writing uh, to a friend of his. He was committed to celibacy but struggling with sexual desire. And he said, you know, isn't one of the most wretched things about this condition that when you look ahead, the same impossible road seems to continue indefinitely? I mean, you're driven to rebellion when you think of there being no point to it and to despair when you think of there being no limit to it. That's why I find it a comfort when I feel desperate or rebellious or both to remind myself of God's promise that one day it will be finished. Finished in both senses. He will put a stop to the troubles of this life, and he will, at the same time, complete what he has been doing by means of them. These struggles are neither endless nor pointless. And James says, don't give up. Be patient even when the road ahead seems difficult because I promise you, the Lord is good. He's filled with compassion and mercy and he will meet you. You are not alone. The Holy Spirit groans with you. Everyone in this room groans with you and waits with you. Creation itself is doing it. Trust and know the goodness of the Lord. So how does being patient with injustice and with everybody else here and in the suffering of discipleship really help us on Monday morning when you're waiting for the train again or behind a particularly slow car? Let me suggest that those might be spiritual formation moments. Maybe what God is saying is, look, you aren't ready to engage in justice yet, and frankly, the people at church are way too difficult for you, Your steps for discipleship are pretty difficult. How about we just learn to be patient for four minutes until the next train comes? Do you think you could manage that? Maybe sexual purity is really hard for you, but could you maybe drive a little bit more slowly and not honk at the person who's at the green light but hasn't moved yet? Because maybe with that little bit of self-control, we can get somewhere, right? I have a friend who actually suggested as he thought about the hurry that we live in, what happens if the church for a week just said, look, I'm going to intentionally get in the longest checkout lane at the grocery store, and when somebody gets behind me in the line, I'm just going to let them go ahead of me. I'm going to intentionally drive for a week on the highway or the roads of New York behind the slowest car I can find. (laughs) And when the subway comes and it looks a little crowded Monday morning, I'm going to intentionally wait for the next one and let somebody else take my place. Now, some of you are thinking, oh my God, (laughs) that could be the Spirit speaking to you right now, because obviously he's found something that he needs to work with. Because you see, if we did that, it might de-center us a little bit, right? Right? We wouldn't be the star of our own stories. Our anxieties, issues, hang-ups, and agendas wouldn't be at the center of the universe. We'd instead say, for that three-minute extra wait in the checkout line, that two-minute delay in getting where we want to go, I don't need to be in control. It's not about me. I can trust God has given me enough time to do what I need to do we can act a little bit more like Jesus. Now, it's one of the reasons that we as a church pursue the Sabbath, right? Because one day out of seven we go, I don't need to be in a rush today. This is a a day of delight and celebration. It's a chance to be patient. It's why we pray the hours, as Rich described, last week in his uh, great sermon on gentleness, right? He said, I have to pray the hours because I am so filled with the Spirit on Sunday and by Monday morning, I've kind of lost my sanctification on the subway and by noon, I don't even remember I'm a Christian and by if I let things go by 5 p.m., I've completely given up the faith. And so we stop ourselves multiple times a day. My own practice of um, praying the hours is, um, I have a lunch prayer and I pray it every day. It takes me four minutes, not that I've timed it, because i'm a patient. impatient but um, um my new prayer goes like this i pray in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit amen because i have to remind myself it's all about him right i'm going to center myself on him and then i pray a line from the psalms let the beauty of the lord our god be upon us establish thou the work of my hands to remind myself that everything i'm doing is his so really greg just let go it belongs to jesus And then I pray Psalm 131, which has been really critical to me for over a decade, because it says this, my heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty, I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I've calmed and quieted myself, I'm like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child I'm content, right? Because I'm not a nursing infant who's desperate for the next meal, I'm a weaned child who knows my needs have been satisfied. Every need I have has already been met, and so rather than demanding something, I can just rest and enjoy my mother's presence because I'm secure and safe. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. I then pray the Lord's Prayer because uh, New Life tells me to, but also because right the prayer orients my entire life. God's name be great. May your kingdom come, your will be done, and I can trust you for daily bread and help me with people I need to forgive. And then I recite um, the Apostles' Creed because I need to ground myself in the reality of something bigger than myself, and it's those truths, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, because those are true. I believe in those a lot more than I believe in the anxiety I feel about work. Oops, I conclude with um, a quick Psalm. Um, Teach us, dear Lord, to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands. And then I conclude with a prayer that Rich actually introduced to us as a church a couple months ago. God of mercy, this midday moment of rest is your gift of grace. Bless the work we have done, make good its defects, and, let, and finish it in a way which pleases you. Grant this through Christ we pray, amen. And it's a miracle for me how in this four or five-minute moment of prayer, because I pray it really fast. Um, My anxiety drops, my patience for the people around me and the issues I need to work with increases because it centers me on the supremacy of God and it humbles me to remember my own limitations. So, brothers and sisters, can I invite you? Find a slow lane this week. Let a train go by. Don't rush your way through checkout. Because in these small little disciplines of patience, God's inviting us to endure and engage and fight injustice in a distinctively Christian way. To actually offer patience and grace to the people around us. To actually persevere in the process of sanctification so that in the end we look like Jesus. Because that's what the fruit of the Spirit are. It's part of the way the Spirit makes us look like Jesus who had an agenda but was never rushed, who had places to go but never turned, Never failed to turn aside to talk to the people who need to be spoken to, who could trust God in his own time and in his own way to give him all the kingdoms of the world. Let me invite the worship team to come up and let me pray for us. Um, Lord, I pray, I admit, um, I don't really wanna pray for patience because um, you'd probably give me too many opportunities to practice it. And yet I know that uh, you desire to shape my soul. And so would you shape my soul in such a way that at the end of that process I look more like Jesus? Because I want to be like Jesus and the world needs to see more people who look like Jesus. And so for us as a people, Holy Spirit we pray, make us more like the Lord, amen.